Hello, and welcome to Voices in Vulnerability, a podcast where we interview the scholars shaping vulnerability theory in the legal world and beyond. Today, we have a special interview for you with guest interviewer, Professor Atiano Amboya of Emory Law. Professor Amboya has worked extensively with vulnerability theory, particularly in the areas of international human rights and environmental law. In this podcast episode, you will hear her interviewing Corinna Harry, postdoctoral researcher at University of Zurich and author of the recently published book, Responsive Human Rights, Vulnerability, Ill-Treatment, and the ECTHR. I know you'll enjoy their conversation today. Good afternoon, Corinna. It's wonderful to have you on the podcast and uh, really excited to see your book that's out on uh, responsive human rights and looking forward to our conversation today. Please tell me a little bit about, you know, your background and just what you do in the human rights field and the vulnerability field as a scholar. Thank you so much also for the invitation to be here today uh, to talk about my research and the book that just came out. Uh, it's a real honor um, to be here and, and to talk about that with you. Um, so I, I came at this topic from a legal background. Uh, my background is, is in law. I, I studied um, law at my bachelor's, master's level. And as I started looking for a PhD topic, um, I was lucky enough to find a supervisor in Judge Helen Keller, who was a judge at the European Court of Human Rights at the time. And in conversations with her through the case law that was that was coming out at that time, I I discovered or I happened upon the, the concept of vulnerability in the case law of the European Court of Human Rights and realized that even though the, the concept or the word popped up everywhere, there was no real definition um, uh, of that concept. And that started off my journey, really. Um, so it's been it's been 10 years now um, that I've been working on on this uh, on this topic. Um, Wow, that's that's really interesting that you you actually found the use of vulnerability, you know, that terminology and some of those rulings. And were those like recent European cases? And I guess sort of in the last decade, right? Yes, exactly. So uh, my my book is based on a set of um, of several hundred cases, um, and they're they're mostly very recent. So this is something that started to happen in the nineties and escalated and, and proliferated. Um, dramatically since then. So um, we went from seeing a few cases a year where vulnerability was maybe mentioned, uh, sometimes tangentially, to seeing uh, many dozens or even hundreds of cases um, where this this concept was playing a role. And I really wanted to know why and, and what this was doing in the case law. Um, and so that's, that's also when I started to think more about um, social justice. I started to engage more with uh, the work of Professor Feynman and, and, and kind of broaden my, my horizons a little bit to try and, and really see what the work was that this concept can do. And also maybe some of the ways that the concept wasn't quite doing that work yet in the case law of the court. Interesting. So what was, what was some of the work you found it doing? Was it being used more as a descriptive tool or as a normative tool is that is that something you saw or it, it really depends uh, on the on the case uh, the the really interesting thing about vulnerability in the case law of the court is that we see it doing almost everything um, it's a real workhorse really so we see this this we see we see the term popping up in every type of 
uh, argumentation from admissibility issues to the merits to just satisfaction. Um, it can shift the burden of proof. Um, it can do it can do very many things. But but really, in its in its essence, it's it's a way of of recognizing certain um, types of harms, certain types of suffering. So it's doing work of of recognition. Um, it it plays a role in the non discrimination context, but it also plays a very big role in how the court um, delimits the prohibition of torture and inhuman and degrading treatment under the convention. Okay, so that's really interesting that you you know you you find that the court is actually using it, looking at sort of harms and wrongs that have been done, um, and so do you find that the court is then using it as a generative. Um, if you like, a generative idea or reality from, from which to base its decisions. And, you know, do you find any sort of exciting or interesting novel court decisions drawing on uh, vulnerability? Um, in, in, my, in my opinion, actually, some of the most exciting case law involves vulnerability, because these are often the cases where the court pushes the boundaries of the case law that's existed so far mm-hmm. um, in terms of uh, recognizing violations of human rights where otherwise maybe it, it wouldn't have done so um, in terms of recognizing certain types of harms and experiences. Um, also, in, in some sense, vulnerability provides a, a sort of substitute, not a not a, an entirely um, able substitute in all in all cases, but sort of a substitute for regard for intersectionality, which is something that the court um, that's a that's a term that the court pretty much refuses to use, uh, and in its place, it it uh, refers to the heightened or the extreme vulnerability of of the people concerned. Um, but but ultimately, what we see this this concept doing is it 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 provides better human rights protection. So it it renders the court more applicant friendly. It makes cases more likely to succeed when someone is considered uh, vulnerable as opposed to when they are not. Um, what is happening here, though, is indeed that when they are not. So there are applicants who are considered vulnerable and applicants who are not considered vulnerable. And that's one of the things that I find rather problematic in the case law, because the way that the court uses vulnerability kind of cements this idea that vulnerability is exceptional instead of drawing on the universality of our shared vulnerability as as uh, embodied humans. And so I, I find that something that I also critique in the book and that I that I see leading to quite a bit of um, not just to contradictions in the case law, but also to protection gaps whenever someone isn't able to demonstrate that they're that they're vulnerable. So is there also sort of this element of stigma that comes with vulnerability in the way at least the, the European court is currently using it to you see that as well? That is something that that is that is a concern. So uh, also the idea that if someone is described as vulnerable, that it it underscores uh, their marginalization, that it maybe can be paternalizing uh, things like that. It can stereotype applicants. And I, I read a I read a, a very interesting report on the uh, strategic litigation cases for Roma rights, where some of the people who were uh, representing these cases and and some. Some members of that community said, we are not vulnerable. We don't want to be described as vulnerable. Um, and that is something I think that doesn't really see itself very reflected in, in the court's case law. At the same time, vulnerability in the case law is empowering. So it's something that um, 
makes people more able to claim their rights. Um, when people are unable to claim their rights in the domestic sphere, that also can be its own kind of vulnerability. Mm-hmm. Um, procedural flaws and, um, for example, in sexual violence cases, um, re, re-victimizing or re-traumatizing uh, um, the, the applicants through the proceedings can right. also be a kind of vulnerability. Right. Okay, so it's, it's interesting that from what you're describing, you've seen it's a sort of a mixed approach and mixed results with, with the use, use of the concept of vulnerability by the court. Um, I'm excited about the idea that, you know, you're seeing actually a, a more expansive reading and better opportunities for claimants to get redress um, when the court actually um, uses vulnerability in its reasoning and contextualizes that as well. So that's, I think that's exciting. And, and the fact that vulnerability is, is, is um, you know, it's a new discourse, certainly in the field of law. It's, it's, it's a new area that's growing. Um, it's not, I don't think it's surprising to see, you know, some of, if you like, the current misunderstood, narrow, stigmatized use of that language, you know, being carried over into, you know, the court cases or even just everyday usage of the language. But then to be able to see, you know, a human rights court starting to take that concept and make it a way in which it can be more responsive to claimants, I think is, is very exciting and, and takes us, you know, sort of more in the direction of how um, uh, Professor Feynman has theorized vulnerability in terms of it being a universal condition and being a generative condition from which we can um, build resilience and find answers and the state and its institutions can respond, um, you know, specifically to the different claims that um, any human being has. So I think it's it's really exciting to see this coming out of the European court. Um, You know, I I did some work looking at, um, you know, the African Commission, African Tribunal, and how it has um, looked at human rights. And it has a very expansive sort of understanding and reading of human rights and even the recognition of like community human rights. Um, so I don't know if you've seen any any moves in that direction, whether it's, you know, whether it's with the groups like the Roma people or others, that whether the European court is actually also articulating and starting to recognize um, sort of group human rights and the need for states to be responsive to that. Um, well, on the one hand, I have to say that one of the frequent critiques that I also find myself making is that the European Court of Human Rights is so individualistically set up. So the court is, is set up so individualistically that now I'm, I'm currently working on, on climate change cases. And there, too, that's one of the, the big hurdles to litigating these types of cases. Right. Um, so the court's focus is, is is individualistic, but at the same time, it has, um, especially in its non-discrimination case law, recognized certain vulnerable groups. Um, and that recognition does different types of work in, in the case law. It can facilitate uh, claiming uh, rights for people who belong to those groups. Mm-hmm. It, can, it can lower uh, burdens of proof. It can reverse uh, burdens of proof. Um, it, can, it can do different things. So uh, it can narrow the state margin of appreciation. That's something, that's a concept that in, in, the, in the work of, of the court um, is it, that plays a major role, right? So the, the concept of the margin of appreciation, when that's narrowed, um, that, that can really facilitate finding that the situations um, are incompatible with the convention when perhaps otherwise uh, the court wouldn't have done so. So in that sense, group vulnerability is recognized, but I think in a very different sense 
than, than it is in other systems. Mm-hmm. And that's something the court also doesn't allow, uh, doesn't allow what, what it calls the actio popularis. So, um, it requires, uh, evidence of, of victim status in, in individual applicants and, and doesn't, uh, generally allow for, um, for cases of that, of that nature. And even, you know, if you go back to, you know, sort of the traditional understanding of human rights, that individual um, context um, from which the, you know, the whole domain of human rights arose. Did you find any cases or any particular case that's that's very exciting for you in terms of how the European court has addressed it and, and even harnessed the concept of vulnerability in deciding it? Um, I think I, there were two cases that were that were extremely meaningful um, to me as I was writing the book. Um, and um, they were cases where I was lucky enough to be in the deliberations of the court when they, they were being, um, they were being deliberated. So that, that also gave an added uh, element to that, of course, but, and the two cases are, are O'Keefe versus Ireland and Valentin Campeano versus Romania. And they're two cases, they're very different. Um, and the court used vulnerability in different ways in those two cases. Uh, and O'Keefe, uh, it, it discussed protective, positive obligations and the protection of, of children from sexual violence uh, in state schools. And in the Valentin Campiano case, it discussed the um, the treatment and eventual death of uh, a young man who was um, who um, really was a paradigmatic example of the intersection of a number of different sources of vulnerability. And mm-hmm. um, so he was. He was young. He was of Roma origin. Um, he had a cognitive disability. Um, he was uh, in state custody. Um, he had no family, um, and he was HIV positive. And he had just a number of these these factors um, that the court recognizes as sources of vulnerability in um, came together there. And that was a case that really, based on the admissibility criteria that the court usually uses, it shouldn't even have, have looked at. It shouldn't even have declared admissible. Um, and in that case vulnerability did a tremendous amount of work in allowing that case to be heard. And the court, in in essence, said that not hearing this case, not examining this case, would uh, remove it from scrutiny, from human rights scrutiny, and that that was untenable. So that was a that was a really momentous sort of decision for a court that often pulls back, um, relies on its subsidiarity, um, defers to states, things like that. That that was a case where I really saw the work that vulnerability can do um, in a case that I, that comes, that runs sort of all through the book um, because of, of how powerful that finding was. So it sounds like in that particular case, the, um, you know, the subject was in many ways disconnected from, from the embedded institutions of society from which we draw resilience, right? And, and seeing that the court, you know, was not going to be yet another institution that, you know, was, was going to be missing in action, so to speak. So that's that's really interesting to see that, you know, the court steps up and says it has a role and, and then actually comes up with a decision that um, that's meaningful. Wow, that's, no, this is exciting to see vulnerability starting to come through decisions um, because, of course, you know, for us, working in this area a lot of it has just been theorizing vulnerability and trying to you know just understand in what ways also does vulnerability enrich human rights discourse in what ways does it critique human rights discourse in what ways are sort of the two fields different 
Um, I don't know if you have any any thoughts around that when you're looking at sort of the human rights field and and this growing area of human vulnerability. Have you seen any sort of int- interesting synergies and potential tensions that um, you, you plan to explore further in, in your work over the years? Um, well, one of the tensions that I'm, I'm currently really interested in is it goes back to this individualistic positioning of the court and to something that I'm, I'm working on more now, which is uh, the four cases that are pending before the court right now regarding climate change. Mm-hmm. And in those cases, I'm, I'm really interested in seeing how we can theorize climate-based vulnerability um, in a way that might be helpful to capturing climate change under the human rights umbrella, because I think there are currently quite a few challenges, especially within the European system, to to doing that. Um, At the same time, I think there's still quite a long way to go um, in making this practice reflect uh, the the excellent ways in which vulnerability has been theorized. So mm-hmm. I think there's still a lot of a lot of areas where the court um, dis- displays a, an understanding of vulnerability that falls significantly short. So predominantly, I think that my main critique is the fact that it doesn't reflect a universal understanding of vulnerability. Um, I think that's that's a really key one. Um, there's been some excellent work done by, by other scholars on, on the court's approach to vulnerability. So Alexandra Timmer is one, Lourdes mm-hmm. Peroni has done some great work on this. And I think as more work is done on, on the ways in which the, the concept of vulnerability can, can be reflected in, in the practice, um, I think we'll, we'll continue to see this evolving. The work definitely isn't done, um, but um yeah, I think I think there's definitely still still room for for um, sort of bringing the two closer together, um, the theory, the practice. Um, but um, I'm I'm yeah, I'm hopeful that it'll continue to do that. I think uh, the fact that you're going into climate change is really interesting because, of course, um, vulnerability to climate change is universal. Okay, you know that's that's one of the things about it. It's a global, it's a universal issue, and uh, regardless of where you're sitting on planet Earth. You know, you have to care about this. Of course, the, the big the big challenge with um with climate change is the causation issue, right? You know, how can you prove that emissions from party X are the cause of your injury in place Y, right? And so I think you know, vulnerability also is 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 something that can help open up jurisprudence and um and whether we like it or not, I think climate change is going to force us to rethink some of these fundamental concepts, whether we're looking at tort law, whether we're looking at property law, what, what does injury mean? What does my neighbor mean? Um, really exciting um, areas that um, certain, you know, sort of the liberal foundations of law have in many ways reached their limits under the global issue of climate change. And so for me, I find, you know, vulnerability theory very useful in that area because, you know, it's really, uh, it's it's a it's a tool through which you can go from the individual to universal vulnerability, which is what we're looking at under climate change. So lots of exciting areas to open up there, and I look forward to you know reading some of your work and happy to share um, mine with you as well. So. In terms of, um, you know, sort of vulnerability and the work you've seen it doing at the European court, um, have you seen it sort of change the way in which the court is potentially articulating, um, you know, 
human rights and, and its direction too as well? Have you seen that? Uh, I think there's there's definitely uh, quite a bit of, of change this, that has taken place while referring to the concept of vulnerability. Something strange that I've observed lately is that there seem to be fewer and fewer explicit references to vulnerability. And I don't know if that's a reaction to uh, more attention being paid to vulnerability and the court sort of taking a step back. But in practice, that's not having a tremendous effect because the case law that's been established in reference to vulnerability, it goes on. Um, the same types of cases are being decided. The word vulnerability simply isn't said in those cases, which makes them harder to find for scholars like me, but does, doesn't have a tremendous practical effect. And I think I would speculate that the cause for this is indeed that more scholars are paying attention to this concept and are also critiquing the way in which the court uh, goes about this. And that maybe this is a reaction, a reaction to that. But uh, fundamentally, vulnerability has changed various aspects of the case law, um, has de- has helped to develop especially positive, so protective obligations uh, in, a, in a range of areas, and has, has helped um, applicants get access to the court, um, has helped their cases proceed before the court, has helped them uh, reach a violation finding. Um, and so, it, indeed, I, it has done a tremendous amount of work. I think, and to circle back to the the climate change issue, I think the work that I would like to see it doing is is the work of of tackling um, tackling certain power relationships that maybe it's not tackling so far. Uh, and in the climate context, I'm I'm interested in in the ways in which indeed we're all universally vulnerable to climate change, even though it might impact us in different ways, um, and we might also benefit differently from from climate change. Um, but I'm interested in the ways in which indeed we are we are dependent on action and we are dependent on changes um, in the power structures that enable and and profit from climate change. And that is its own its own source uh, of vulnerability in, in my eyes. So I'm, I'm, I'm really interested in seeing if human rights can do some sort of work in recognizing and and just really clarifying the the extent to which the status quo um, contributes to and facilitates climate change. Right. Yeah. Because of course, you know, sort of the when we look back, sort of the historical contributions to greenhouse gas emissions, you know, it, it just dovetails really neatly with the industrialization process and what that has meant for economic growth and and what that has meant for global power relations, right? Between whether it's north and south or even within north and south, you know, the differential access to resources within countries. So, so lots uh, to unpack there for sure. And in terms of sort of the, the work that human rights would be doing there, it's, 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 I think it's interesting because of course, human rights is about getting the state to respond, right? Um, you know, for me as someone that worked in human rights in Kenya, you know, trying to get the state to respond is always, it's almost a, a danger for human rights activists in that part of the world. Um, so one of the reasons I, I was attracted to human vulnerability theory was because it wasn't necessarily just, you know, sort of the adversarial position of, you know, I have these rights as a human being and the state is withholding them for whatever reason, it's not helping me realize the rights, but also realizing that, you know, the state itself also has 
its own vulnerability, you know, the way it's constituted, who's running it, what are its systems like, and even how is it embedded in the global political economy? That's a vulnerability for the state too. And I think, in, you know, once the political elites start to hear that, you know, you, you have an understanding of their vulnerability too, then potentially, you know, realizing that, you know, this is a common enterprise for the governed and the governors. It's not a battle and a tension between, you know, who has power and who's a citizen in the country looking for responsiveness from the state. So, so for me, that's one of the things I really like about vulnerability theory in that it, it's acting as a bridge um, especially in, you know, countries in the global south where the tension between the state and especially human rights actors can be, can be really um, severe and potentially dangerous for those actors. But lots of uh, um, interest to see how human rights, you know, vulnerability rather, is coming alive in the courts in, in Europe. So that, that's definitely something to watch. Um, and, you know, if, if we start seeing sort of vulnerability language in court in, in Africa, I think that would be interesting to see how they use it. Um, but right now, like I say, just the human rights, certainly the African tribunal's expansive reading of human rights is very consonant with, you know, a vulnerability approach of looking at embeddedness within social institutions and then looking at social institution embeddedness within the larger context of the country or even the global political economy. So that awareness that I've seen in the African tribunal's work is, is very exciting and, and keeps, you know, sort of the human rights um, relevance, um, you know, front and center. Well, this has been a really interesting conversation and, uh, you know, like I say, we look forward to seeing more of your work and hearing more of your thoughts around responsive human rights. And even though I know you mentioned that, you know, it seems like the court has become a little bit silent, at least in terms of the use of vulnerability, even though in practice, you know, the vulnerability language and its contribution is there. I think that's an interesting development. And who knows, maybe, maybe the court is is waiting to see what the scholarly path for the vulnerability is, is showing so that it can actually follow that path because maybe it started using that language away from, you know, sort of the scholarly context and all the deep thinking that's been going into this concept. And now that it realizes that, yes, it's actually, you know, a, a field of, of really importance in the legal arena it could be that the court is giving scholars a chance to articulate things more clearly for them to be able to use and draw on and apply who knows that's that's my optimistic read of, of what that silence could mean for for you as a vulnerability scholar in Europe I would love to be able to play a role in, in filling that gap um I would I would be really honored to do that um but I guess we'll have to wait and see yes well, this has been really wonderful. Thanks again for joining um, our Voices in Vulnerability. Looking forward to another conversation. Don't forget to subscribe to Voices in Vulnerability wherever you get your podcasts. And to follow us on Twitter at VHC Initiative and on Facebook at Vulnerability and the Human Condition. Thanks for tuning in.